Uh, If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up and join with me in Psalm chapter 95. We'll be reading, uh, in actually just a few minutes, we're going to read Psalm 95 uh, as we kind of lead into that text. Um, I would love for you to put a bookmark in Genesis 39. Uh, not hard to find uh, that. Uh, just put a bookmark there. We'll turn there at the end of our time together. Uh, but we'll begin in Psalm 95, and uh, that is kind of right in the middle of the Old Testament. Um, not too difficult to find. So uh, Psalm 95, uh, a lot of the Psalms, uh, we know some of the big ones, 23, 119. Um, but uh, there's a lot of good uh, songs written by David and uh, some of the worship leaders of ancient Israel. And this one, is really, really good, and it actually inspired a song that you're probably pretty familiar with. So we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But uh, if you've been paying attention uh, to the news, and if you haven't, I don't blame you because it's kind of kind of depressing, right? Not always the most cheerful stuff to, to read about or hear about on the news or uh, in, in the media. Uh, but if you've been paying attention uh, for the last few months, or if you have a smartphone and you get text messages, you've been reminded about this every single day because they don't stop sending us stuff about it. Uh, but uh, uh, everybody is talking about the uh, the election that is coming up on Tuesday, and, and that's very important. Uh, but, but don't worry, we're not talking about it here because you need a break from that because that's all everybody talks about not here, right? Um, but uh, I'm glad we can have a place where our minds can get off some of the things that the world wants to bog us down with. Uh, but, but I mean, uh, about the text messages, I, I have never, I have never ever checked a box or said yes to sending me text messages from all these uh, political uh, political platforms or whatever. Uh, and I get a hundred a day. I mean it. I get a th- so many a day. It is like my text message folder is just full of all these things. And it's from, you know, I get tired of reading those things, and y'all probably do too. I reply to every one of them, stop, 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 and they keep sending them, and they get a different number and send me from those, and sometimes they address someone who's not me. So I, I know if y'all get those, you, you understand the rant, um, I'm kind of, it'll be over in just a few days. So hopefully, right? Uh, and then it'll start up again next fall. So we're, we're going through, we know how that is. But um, all the media wants to talk about every October, every November of an election year, um, and all that you hear and you watch in terms of the the nightly news, um, all the media wants to do is make predictions, right? Uh, Because election season is is kind of an entertaining thing that that the whole month before is, hey, let's predict how things will go. And and, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of of an update. Uh, Certain channels are always going to predict the same things, right? Even if that's not the way it should be predicted. Uh, And and also, um, the predictions don't change week to week, right? The map looks the same color as it did last week. I don't know. Uh, we, we keep making the same predictions again and again, right? Um, but, but the next few days will be nonstop predictions. People will have their charts and their screens and their whiteboards and all that stuff. Um, and and uh, again, Everybody is really into making predictions about what's going to happen Tuesday night. But, but it's not just the political world. Um, making predictions is a pretty big business in today's world. Um, there are entire networks uh, dedicated to sports because uh, half the time is spent predicting what's going to happen in the next game, right? They play games on the weekend, but then the first half of the next week and, and, and on into the weekend is, hey, let's predict what's going to happen at the next game. And, and, and again, if you go on YouTube, there are, there are tons of videos that just make predictions about everything from television shows to movies uh, to to books everything people love to predict hey what's going to happen next in this season in this series whether real life or you know reality television or just you know the fiction world Um, we as a people I think it's pretty safe to make this conclusion 
we love consuming predictions as much as we actually like learning about what actually happens, right? That we'd like to talk about what might happen as much or more as we like talking about what actually happens. Now, th- this isn't really foreign to the Christian world, I don't think, especially in, in evangelical circles like ours, um, because as long as I've been alive, uh, everybody has always wanted to talk about uh, prophetically uh, what the Bible says is going to happen in the future, right? And we all make predictions and we write books and we make charts and we, you know, preach sermons about, hey, well, we don't really know what this says, but let's predict and kind of make, you know, try to see if we can make it, you know, fit into to the way we see the world or the way that we in- interpret things in the world. So if I've learned anything from predicting the end of time, I mean, you know, and again, Jesus is coming back one day, you know, newsflash, but how many times have people made these predictions? You know, it was 2011, 2012, a lot of those, right? 1999, all these people have made these predictions, right? That are clearly the Bible says you shouldn't do that because you're not going to guess it. Uh, but but, but if I've learned anything from predicting the end of time to predicting champions in any sport, predicting who's going to win or lose an election, uh, even though we love making predictions, we aren't really good at them, right? I mean, there are people who are very, very, very sure that this is going to happen in an election or this is going to happen Bible prophecy or this is going to happen in a movie or in a ball game. And, and as good as people are at making them and people get paid big money to stand on TV and predict things and give people, you know, uh, advice about, you know, whether, you know, there's entire networks about in, uh, predicting the stock market, right? And then they have to get on and they say, well, I guess I was wrong. You lost a lot of money. I'm sorry, right? We pay a a lot of people a lot of money to predict things and they're not really good at it right and again we kind of like it we watch the weather right and and what is the weather but educated yes but they're still predicted predicted predictions educated predictions are still predictions right but we consume that and we eat it up and we watch it and watch it again and again and again uh and, and again for as much as we predict and make good guesses there are far 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 more wrong predictions than there have ever been right inaccurate predictions. People predict this this is going to happen in the polls, this is going to happen in a game, this is going to happen in a movie, this is going to happen in prophetic events, and nine times out of ten, nothing actually takes place as was predicted. So, I've sat around a lot of table with friends before going to a movie and we've all predicted, hey, what's going to happen? And usually none of us are right. Um, we've all sat in living rooms and watched ball games or uh, reality shows predicting what's going to happen and we're hardly ever right. Uh, again, in, in, in the sports betting industry is a billion dollar industry and, and yet people lose a lot of money, a lot, a lot of money, yet people still are addicted to the predicting, right? It's entertaining to make predictions and, and, and you know, be involved in all that. So if you're engaged in politics, if you're interested in, uh, you know, what's going to happen, uh, you know, it, uh, this coming Tuesday, um, we've all got faults, but odds are none of us are going to guess everything exactly the way it's going to play out. And as much as we like to predict, and as close as our predictions, as close as we think our predictions are, we are reminded again and again and again and again and again that life, every aspect of it, life is un predictable, incredibly unpredictable. And you all know that. We all know that. Yet we still are entertained by predictions. Now, you don't need me to tell you that. Uh, you, don't, you don't need me to explain that because you know how unpredictable life is. Uh, and that's why I think we love to make predictions about things uh, more than we really love to talk about what actually happens because things that are out of our reach, um, it kind of 
makes it kind of detaches us and kind of gives us something to, to think about and to kind of, you know, get our minds, uh, you know, uh, entertained with. But for good or not so good, none of us could ever predict how life is going to play out to the point that we don't even try. You know, we'll predict elections and ball games and other things in the entertainment world, but we aren't going to sit around and make predictions about our lives because we know that we're never going to get close, whether it's good things or bad things, that we can never predict how things are going to go. Uh, thankfully, uh, that's not a reason for concern for us today. Thankfully, the, the, the reality that life is unpredictable should not concern us, even though I know it does. Thankfully, we don't have to be concerned about how unpredictable life is, and we don't have to fret over the fact that we are really bad at making predictions and could never predict how things are going to go. Thankfully, we don't have to be concerned, and, and, and you are in the exact right place if you are concerned, because... As unpredictable as life is, we are reminded again and again that God is in control. At the center of it all, at the center of all creation, God is there holding it all together. As unpredictable as everything is, and believe me, it is unpredictable. From my life to your life to the world around us, nothing can be predicted. Nothing can really be you know, comprehended and understood, and, and, and nobody can make a guess about how things are going to go, whether it would be a good or a bad thing that might happen. But we don't have to be concerned, no matter how it might disturb us, that things are unpredictable. We don't have to be unsettled by that, because at the center of it all, God is in control. Now, whether you came here today to do this or not, just today we've lifted up songs that reiterate this and proclaim this. Uh, we, we began by singing, uh, who can stop the Lord? Nobody can stop him, right? Nothing can come up against him and say, hey, you, you aren't in control. Of course, right? He is unstoppable. He is the God who makes promises and keeps promises. And when we ask the question, how great is our God? He is greater than anyone and anything. So here's the good news. that Maybe you already know this, but I think it's good to hear it again and again because we are so reminded about how uncertain things are around us. Our God never faces an unpredictable moment. Do, do, do you ever think about that? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you should. Our God is never caught by surprise. God never wakes up and thinks, man, I didn't, what just happened? You ever, you ever wake up and, it, you know, it snowed or it's rained or something went on outside and you wake up and you look outside and think, wow, that's not the way it looked when I went to bed, right? That's not the way it was. Maybe you leave town for a few days and you come back and something's changed. That's not the way it was. God never looks out of his window and says, well, that's a surprise, God never turns on the news. God never hears something that happened to you or to me or anybody else. God never it's caught off guard. He never has an unpredictable moment because he knows what's going on and he has a plan for where it's going. And if you don't know that, I hope that you can internalize that, write it down, think about it, read over it, and, and hopefully the rest of the message will just give you more and more certainty about this. He knows what's going on. We don't, I don't, nobody else does, right? But he knows what's going on, and he has a plan for where it's all going, for you, for me, for everybody. All of our services are, are structured to remind us of this. It's like that song that we all learned in Bible school, we all learned when we were kids, He's got the whole world in his hands, right? 
He has the whole world and the world, not just the ball that's floating out in space, but the people in the world and all the people that are all not, that are not working together, right? You and I, are, are might be, we might be on the same Jesus team, but we're not all working for the same thing every single day, right? You've got a job, I've got a job, we've all got jobs, we've all got families, we've all got stuff going on. All of us have our own irons in the fire. We're working alongside of a lot of people in the world that all are doing their own thing. People from all over the world that are working against us or against each other, yet all of it fits in the palm of God's hand, and nothing is unpredictable to him. Now, that overwhelms me because I'm a logical person, and I like to think, well, hey, that doesn't make sense. How can it all work together when all of us are working against each other? I'm competing with you. I'm working against you. I'm trying to get there before you. I'm trying to do my own thing, and sometimes you're in my way, right? How in the world can it all work together when we're all working against each other? or at least not thinking about each other. That overwhelms us. That will make us completely spin out of control in a minute thinking about it. Don't try thinking about it because it's not going to lead you to a good place. Yet, like the old song says, he's got the whole world in his hands. Now, maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not, but the song, that song actually takes inspiration from an ancient song that's in the Bible uh, that we've opened up to today, and we're going to take our inspiration from today and over the next couple of weeks. Uh, this is really profound writing to have come out of a place that, that the place that it did years ago, from one of the smallest nations in the world, a nation that often seemed at mercy of larger, more powerful nations around them. Uh, this song, written by the ancient Israelites, or an ancient Israelite worship team under King David, uh, that the fact that this song came out of Israel, I think is pretty incredible because they were in the most unpredictable times that you could imagine. Yet listen to what they taught their people to sing in the face of that unpredictability, in the face of that uncertainty. This is actually an invitation. It's a call to worship. Maybe your Bible has that heading, but again, that's kind of a, a heading given by the English writers. Psalm 95 says, the first seven verses, Oh, come and let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock to the foundation, to the security, to the firm foundation of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great king above all the gods and above all the kings and above all the people who think they have control. God is great and above all of them. In his hand, I love this, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. And, and, and that, that phrase deep means unsearchable. In his hands are the unsearchable, unpredictable, uh, undetectable, uncontrollable. In his hands are the deep, mysterious, out of control places of the earth. The heights of the hills are also his. The sea is his for he made it. In his hands form the dry land. But you get the, the idea there that there is nothing on the planet that is not in the hand of our God. Now that might make you ask questions about, hey, why does that happen? Why does he let this go on if it's all in his hands? And those questions are legitimate. But the psalmist wants us to know in his hands are all of those deep places. The places that make you wonder how does that work and how does he let that happen and what's going on over there? God is not uncomfortable to tell you. It's all in my hands. And, and for most of us, the, what this actually does is it reminds us that the things that we can't figure out, the things that are too much for us, the things that are overwhelming for us, God has them in his control. 
makes you just want to take a big, deep breath, right? And it means that you can take a breath because a lot of us hold our breath trying to figure it all out. Verse six, oh, come, let us worship and bow down as in let it go, breathe and surrender to him. Because if he's got the whole world in his hands, you can trust him. You can rely on him. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Again, we have that reminder. It's his hand. He is in control. Now, now Thanksgiving is just a few weeks away, but this whole season is really about being thankful and counting our blessings. And, and I think we should do that all the time, but really good for this time of year. This text reminds us, and, and if you haven't ever read this psalm, I mean, what have you been waiting on? It's really good, isn't it? This text reminds us that as unpredictable as life is, God is always reliable. God is always in control. Now, I don't expect any of you who have a lot of doubts today, I don't expect you to be convinced by me repeating that again and again and again, right? I'm not going to be persuasive enough to convince you that, hey, I shouldn't worry or I shouldn't wonder or I shouldn't question. But I do believe God's word with the spirit of God can inspire you to begin believing in these amazing promises. And I hope the rest of our time can help break these promises down and break this reality down and, and give you a little bit of hope today or a whole lot of hope. I also think by breaking this down a little bit, we can begin to find more certainty and clarity about just how God's control can translate to our peace and our joy. Because that's the point of this psalm is that God is in control. You and I can have joy in spite of what might be unsettling us. Uh, verse one and two invites us, come and let us worship. Come and let us shout joyfully. Now there are times that you walk in shouting joyfully because hey, things are going really good for you, right? Things are really great, so why wouldn't you give praise? But there are some circumstances that you might not have any joy whatsoever in your heart or it doesn't feel like you have any joy or there is any reason to have joy. But this this psalm invites us that even when you feel like there is no reason or there is no fountain of joy, you can still find something to be inspired by and something to be filled with joy because of. And, and then the, the psalm ends by, again, inviting us to worship but to bow down, which is a symbol of, hey, I'm trusting in, I'm surrendering, I'm, I've got peace. The, the, the picture of sheep in the pasture of their shepherd. The sheep don't have to worry what's going on outside of the gate because the good shepherd is laying in the gate entrance. So if a wolf is going to try to get them, it's going to get him. And he's got a stick and he'll beat any wolf off if they come toward him, right? They're not going to get close to the sheep. So the sheep can have peace. The sheep can rest easy because they know that the shepherd is protecting them. So the goal here is that God's control would translate to our joy and our peace. And, and, and you know, if you're really invested in a particular political outcome, if you're really invested in a sports team, lesser than maybe, but you know how it feels to sit on the edge of your couch and wonder, how's this going to play out? You know how it is to, to kind of have a lot of nerves and uneasiness that this might not go the way I wanted it to go. But in a much more serious areas, when things are unpredictable in the wrong ways, there's not a lot of joy and there's not a lot of peace to go around, is there? The farthest thing from your mind in the hospital when you're waiting on somebody's uh, you know, results or waiting on the outcome or you're there for yourself, the farthest thing from a hospital waiting room or a surgery waiting room or an ER room is joy and peace, right? Uh, when, when you're waiting on the response from a family member or a workplace or you've 
filled out an application or you're waiting on the test results of whatever walk of life, there's not a lot of peace and joy in those environments because you're really nervous and you're really worried and you're wondering, how's this going to play out? That's why it's important for us to be reminded and to remember that ours is a world over which God has total control because let's just be honest with ourselves and each other. We worry way too much, don't we? You can hear sermon after sermon about don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, and you're still going to do it, right? Because that comes from within you. It comes from your gut, right? It comes from your nature, the reason why we rarely seek God out and we rarely take steps closer to him when things are not going well, right? When, when things aren't going well for you, as much as the preacher says, hey, you should talk to God, you should pray, you should use this to take a step closer to God. That's not what you do when things aren't going well, right? When things aren't going well, you take steps back. When things aren't going well, you, you retreat and you, you kind of get away from God. And that makes no sense, but that's what we do, isn't it? We don't communicate, we don't pray, we don't talk, we don't walk with him. And also... When things are uncertain, we do a lot of standing still, don't we? When things are uncertain, when we could be moving forward in confidence, we just do a lot of standing still and maybe we even retreat in confusion. But if God has the whole world in his hands, if God has your world in his hands, if God is in control, I think there's a few things that we should do as his people that would ensure that we get the most out of him, that he gets the most out of us, and that we get the most out of life. Now, this is what we're gonna be doing over the next couple of weeks. There are three things, some might would only say is the only thing in and of themselves, but there are three things that we as people should do if it's true that our God has the world in his hands. Now, often people will focus on one of these instead of all of these, but I think all three are important. So if our world is in God's hands, and we think so, we think it is, So if it is in God's hand, there are three things that we ought to always do. Trust in him, pray to him, and obey him. Because we have a God who rules, so we should trust in him. We have a God who is in control, so we should trust in him. We have a God who hears us, so we should talk to him. We should pray to him. We should fellowship and communicate with him. We have a God who is interested in us. He's the ruler of the world, but he also loves you and wants a relationship with you, so you should talk to him. You should walk with him. And we have a God who leads and a God who has a good will, has a right way and a wrong way. So we ought to obey him if he is in control and he loves us, then we should obey him because we know that the alternative is not good for anyone, most of all ourselves. If the world is in God's hands, obviously he rules over it. He's in control over it. We ought to trust him. But if we are his, then it means he wants to hear from us and that he loves to hear from us. So we ought to pray and communicate. By all means, we ought to obey him and do what he says. Now, some people will focus on just one of these. Some people will say, well, the only important part is that God's in control, so you don't really have any agency. Uh, It doesn't matter if you pray. It doesn't matter if you obey, that God's in control, and that's really the only thing that matters, and you're just along for the ride. Now, others will say, well, really, the pressure's on you and me, that if we don't pray, then God's just going to sit up in heaven and say, I don't know if I can do anything they haven't asked me. Right? There's others that focus on that. And then there's those that focus on, well, it's about obedience. And if we don't, God won't. So we better make sure we always get the right answers on the test. Because if we fail it, then hey, it's doomed. Even if God is in control. What we're going to find out is that all three of these elements are important. And we must engage, stay engaged with our God through all three of these pathways that he's calling us down. 
And, and that's our word for this study, engage. Engage. Engage is a word that we hear about most of the time when it comes to two parties making a formal agreement to get married, right? Engagement. But engagement uh, is the commitment to stay engaged. It's really the idea of getting engaged is, hey, not a one-time thing. Is that I'm engaged to you. That means I'm going to stay engaged throughout my life in a relationship. So I want to give you the definition of the word engage. And I think you'll, you'll like some of these words. And they're really, they're really important. The word engage, Webster's and other dictionaries define it, that uses the word attract, that there's an attraction, there's something that draws us to each other. Uh, the, the word engage means that we're wholly involved with each other, that we are going to participate fully with each other or in each other's lives. The word engage can means to catch, that, hey, I've caught something, I'm connected to something, I'm going to stay connected. It means to be captivated by or to captivate someone. It means to occupy a certain area. It means to absorb everything that's being offered to you. It means to unite to someone or something. Do you follow me there? That when you engage with someone or engage in something, you are fully committed. You are fully connected. You are absorbing what they have to offer you. You are united to their plan for you. You're focusing your attention. It's capturing your affection. And it's influencing your actions. So engage is this all-encompassing idea, really a state of mind. And this is where we need to be with God. Not just engaged in the parts of him or the fragments of him, but all of him. Like I said, a lot of us get caught up in certain facets of God. There's some who are really into theology and become super obsessed with knowing everything about God. And they use words like sovereignty and predestination. And they really want to focus on those things. And it's not really, we don't have a, ball, a ball, dog in the fight. We're just along for the ride. And again, that's part of it. But, but there's others that think that it's really about how we influence God. And it's our faith that is more important. And we've got to pull the levers because God's a slot machine. And unless we pull the right levers and put the right coin in, then... He's not really got permission to do anything. And there's others that reduce God down to just a formula. It's all about laws and checklists, almost like a job. And I think there's parts of all those things that play into what it really means to be engaged with God, what it really means to be connected and joined and unified with God. And I think we've got to learn how to balance them all and compartmentalize them all. We don't just need to be in one corner. We need to be in the center of it all, observing all that goes on, in believing and following and living for God. And that's what I think this study can help us do. Engage fully in a relationship with God. It's all about trusting, all about praying and communicating, walking with, and all about obeying and doing as he calls us. Now, uh, this is not my own idea. This comes from the Bible. Uh, and, and in fact, when uh, Israel became a nation, listen to what their rally cry was when they would all gather for worship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So here's what the, the text is saying, that God has different angles that when you look at him from one perspective, you might think that's the only thing going on. But if you look at it from another perspective, there's a little bit more to the picture that God, he might have different sides and different angles that we approach him by, but he's one in his being. So the commandment to us is that you shall love the Lord your God, pursue him in a relationship with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might or all your strength. Now think about that. Your heart, what does that refer to? It means that we would trust in him. 
that we'd put all of our faith in him. And then our soul, that's our identity. That's, that's our being. That's who we are as a unique person. And that God wants to know us and that God wants to fill our soul with his spirit and give us a relationship. So that's where the prayer comes in. That we walk with him and we talk with him and we communicate with him and we grow in him. But, but then there's the strength part that is speaking of our obedience so when the Bible says, love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your might or your strength, it's saying, trust in him. It's saying, pray to him and communicate with him. And it's saying, obey him because he's given you the strength to do it. You follow me there? Trust, pray, and do. So if we're going to engage with God fully, if we're going to activate all of who he is and all of who we are and not just be caught up in one little facet of this, in one little area of this, we've got to know all of these angles and why they're important. Separated from each other, we only get part of the way there, but, and we only partially know him and partially grow in him. We must always trust, pray, and do as God's word holistically teaches us. Now, I, I think the starting point and the initial response for us as we learn that God's in control is the first one, that we learn to trust in him. And I want to land there and unpack this for just a few minutes. It sort of encompasses all that we've already talked about, but I think there's some more insight and help we can get from unpacking this a bit more, especially in light of how unpredictable this life is. Because even if life is unpredictable, if God is in control, we can have confidence in him and trust totally in him. Do we agree there? If life is unpredictable, but if God is in control, we can still have confidence in him and totally trust in him. And here, here's the secret. Here's the part that I hope you hear if you don't hear anything else. In many cases, in most cases, we won't be able to detect what God is doing amidst all the unpredictability unless we trust in him and turn towards him through it all. Now, what did we, de what did we decide on earlier? Everything's unpredictable, right? All of life is beyond predictable. So what does this tell us? That we better trust in him and turn towards him in every area of our life because it's all a blur otherwise. Take your eyes off him for one minute and it's gonna be, uh, you're gonna get overwhelmed and you're gonna get distracted. This is one of the most important lessons we can ever learn as a people in a world that otherwise is confusing and emits circumstances that are overwhelming. And maybe you didn't know this, but this was a lesson that God embedded in the origin story of his people that forever reminded them that indeed he had the whole world in his hands, not just their little corner. Now to answer the question that we asked earlier, how did Israel sing the song of Psalm 95 when they were so small and in the middle of a world at the mercy of those more powerful? How did they have the confidence they had amidst all the unpredictability that they were going through? They were very vulnerable. They knew, though, they could trust in God. But how did they have that confidence? Here's why. They knew God was with them no matter what. And you might think, is it that simple? It's that simple. They knew God was with them no matter what. They knew. Now, where have we heard that phrase before? God was with them. 
God was with him or God was with her. Now that phrase doesn't originate with the nation of Israel getting to the promised land or when things were going well for them, but actually it comes from the way, way, way before they were ever organized as a nation. Before even Israel was known as a collection of tribes, before they were, uh, were the, the, the nation that we read about in most of the Old Testament, when they were just a family. And, and it really, before they were even a family, Israel was a man. It was one person. A man with a great promise over his life, a man with a lot of questions and a lot of unpredictable things going on. But God's promise to Israel, the man, formerly known as Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, God's promise to, I, to Israel and his family was that he was going to make them a great nation. He was going to use their family and make them a nation to bring salvation to the whole world. And you know why you know their names 4,000 years later? Because that's what he did, right? The road wasn't easy from the very beginning. Abraham and his wife struggled to even have one child, much less a family. But I, I love this. But they persisted because God promised. Say those first two words together. They persisted. Why did they persist? Because God promised. They persisted. Why did they persist? Because God promised. That's a good reason to persist, isn't it? Oh, but there was a lot of things that made them have reasons to not persist. Y'all know the story. It wasn't easy. It didn't look like it was going to work out. And they helped. They were working against the plan the whole time, right? Eventually, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, and Isaac had twin sons, and boy, was that a mess. Esau and Jacob. Those two forgot uh, fault over their father's blessing and the divine blessing that they were chasing after, this great nation that they might would become. They fought over it. And in spite of all that Jacob did wrong, his tricks and his mischief and his disobedience and his distance from God, his name literally means deceiver and dishonest one. Yet God chose him to be the one he was going to show the world how great his promises were in spite of how not great Jacob was. See how it works. God said, Jacob, I pick you not because you're great, but because you are not so great. But boy, you're going to point to me when I do something through you. How reliable God promises are in spite of how unreliable the, perp, the people, how we and the world around us is. Eventually, Jacob and his wives, his wives, he had four of them, two official wives and two mistresses. That wasn't part of God's plan. Yet they grew into a family, and if we observed that family today, we would, think, we would think God is nowhere near this mess. And we'd be right in saying that, yet God was all over it. But it was out of that mess that God began working an unmissable redemption story. Jacob had 12 sons, but out of those 12 sons, he had a favorite son, didn't he? Who was you might expect the least favorite of his brothers. That's usually how it works, right? You have a favorite child, well, the rest of the siblings, that's their least favorite sibling. Most of you know the story, or at least part of the story. Joseph's brothers devised a plan to get rid of him because they knew the only chance they had of being great in their father's eyes was removing the one who seemed blessed over and against them, right? They thought the only way we're going to be great is to get rid of Joseph. And there's such a powerful lesson there. We often think the only way we're ever going to be blessed is if our adversaries are defeated and removed. Don't you think? The only way it's going to work out is if I get rid of these obstacles, to get rid of these adversaries, get rid of these problems. But that's not how it works in God's kingdom, is it? 
Oddly enough, their attempt to remove Joseph from the top ends up placing him at the bottom, and it's his attitude on the bottom, at the bottom, that reminds us and his brothers all these years later just how God works. Come on, we often think that unless circumstances change for the better, the best or the best we can ever realize the life that we deserve or want so badly. And we wait for ba- with bated breath for things to go our way at home, at work, at school, in relationships. We put hope in test results, election results, economic windfalls. Joseph's brother had the, br- brothers had the perfect plan. We removed the obstacle and we gained the favor. Yet what actually happened was they positioned Joseph to model for them and for the rest of the world this truth. It's often the obstacles that redirect our faith towards God and his greater plans. If there's an obstacle in the road, what do you have to do? You have to drive around it. If there's a detour, you have to go that way, right? It's often the obstacles that redirect our faith towards the greater plan that God has. And that's the point of the detour. So y'all know the story. They set a trap for Joseph. They throw him in the dried up well. But in the crisis of conscience, they decide they should sell him and make some money. Because, hey, that'd be the right thing to do. Let's make some money off the guy. So he ends up as a slave in Egypt. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 39, verse 1 and 2, if you have a bookmark there as we look. The Bible tells us that now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So Joseph was a slave. He was sold to one of Pharaoh's guards. Oh, but isn't this heartwarming? But the Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man in the house of his master, the Egyptian. (laughs) Joseph was already successful back home. He didn't apply for this job. He was sold into slavery. But don't worry, God was with him. That's supposed to make us feel better, but it doesn't make me feel better. Why couldn't God be with him at home? Why couldn't God have been with him and kept him out of a well? Why couldn't God have been with him and kept him from being sold as a slave? Because that wasn't God's plan. Listen, sometimes God's plan are not as we dream them up to be. And I'm going to say something that might be a bit controversial. That's a good thing. Right? That's a good thing. No matter what we think would be ideal, God's plans are always better. And the most important part of this is that if God's plans, it's God's plans that keep us secure in his hands. Listen, you might not be happy with where, your plan, where, where his plans have taken you in the real world, but don't forget, look down. You're in his hands. Would you want to be anywhere else? Well, I mean, I, I think I might like it better over there. Would you want to be over there but not in God's hands? I don't think so, right? This verse from Daniel we look at a lot. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. Daniel says, He does according to his will among the hosts of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say, Whoa, 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 God. What are you doing? Or what have you done? Why would we want to question what God is doing if he has us in his hand? Oh, that we would focus on this when we look at the world around us. He is holding us. He is ruling. I hope you remember that this week and every week after this. And even if it begins to go as you would like it to go, don't forget where your true security comes from. Don't shift your faith. Stay engaged with God. 
Joseph trusted God's plan even when he was sold into slavery because he knew God was with him. And y'all know how the story goes. Joseph finds himself in a compromising position. Yet he does not betray his God. He does not fall for the trap set for him. And you know what that results in? 13 years of prison. Hey, God, I'll take the slave position. (laughs) I didn't like that, but man, I liked it better than being in prison. And I guarantee you the prisoners didn't have the rights they have today back in Egypt in whatever, 1200 BC, right? I bet it wasn't a luxurious thing. 13 years! The man that was favored above all the others! And what does the text tell us down in verse 20? Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. You know what that means? That means he was put in the worst of all or the most security, uh, high security prison. If the king has you arrested, it's because you threatened his power. What did Joseph do? Nothing at all. Yet Potiphar pulled some strings and said, hey, this guy's a threat to the empire. We better lock him away as deep as we can put him. But what did Psalm 95 tell us? God's hand is under the deepest places. But the Lord was with Joseph. I mean, is that a joke? I mean, why couldn't the Lord have been with Joseph not in prison? Oh, but the Lord showed him mercy. I mean, hey, mercy is keeping me out of jail, right? The Lord showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. I've said this before. I don't ever want to have favor with the warden of the prison. Right? I don't want to ever say, well, my best friend's the prison, the warden of the prison. Hey, we have a lot of good time together. I don't want to ever know what it's like right down there in there right hey keep me out of there that's a good thing but I don't want to be your friend while I'm in there but what was what was the message God was with him and oh yeah he was prosper he, he you know the keeper of the prison gave him the, the 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 authority over whatever they did there it was under his watch it was his doing so yeah the prisoner uh, the warden of the prison gave Joseph some authority but again I don't want that kind of authority I don't want to go there right but again, that was part of God's plan to put Joseph in this place. And verse 30, 23 says, The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. But I wish you could have made me prosper, not in jail. Right? But that wasn't God's plan. And you know, as much as we want to complain about this for Joseph, did we ever hear Joseph complaining? He just trusted God because he knew God was with him. He refused to look at any day, no matter the circumstances, through any other lens. Then God is with me, no matter what. So now what? God is with me, no matter what. So whatever happens next, that's my starting point. So what? Now what? God is with me, no matter what. So I'll accept whatever comes my way from that pretense. God is with me, no matter what. So now what should I do? Think about it. What would someone do that is you if they started every day acting from a place in any circumstance? God is with me. Now what should I do? No matter what, he's with me. So now what should I do? So what things aren't as I draw them up to be? God has the world in his hands. God has me in his hands. I'm going to trust his plan. If we want to fully engage with God, we have got to start here and stay here. You hear me? Say those words with me. God is with me no matter what. So now what? As in, I know that God is with me and I know he's never gonna leave me. So what should I do 
under that promise. Now, y'all know where Joseph's story goes. He eventually finds his way out of prison into the palace of Egypt. He becomes the ruler of Egypt under Pharaoh's authority. He brings his family to Egypt for a place of refuge during a famine. He saves the world from a famine that would have killed everybody. And, and, and then his family comes to Egypt, and they grow into the size of a small nation. They give, they're given their own province, but then it goes bad again. A couple hundred years later... The new Pharaoh gets threatened by these Israelites that have their own nation going on, worried that they're going to be a threat to him. He makes them slaves again, but there was a remnant that did not panic. Why? Because God was with them. They waited, they hoped, they trusted in, and you know how that story ends. They come into existence as a free nation through so many miracles, all against the backdrop of so much uncertainty, so much unpredictability, because God never wavered. God's hand was steady the whole time. It took 400 plus years of uncertainty and unpredictability. And we get upset about four weeks, right? Four weeks is pushing it, four days even. And I'm not making fun, this is how it is. That's why the psalmist could confidently write, he's got the whole world in his hands. That's why Joseph never worried, because God was with him. And that's why we should be all in with our confidence in God. And that's why we should do what the old proverb teaches us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. You know what that means? That means even the part that's really worried and legitimately worried, trust him with that part too. And do not lean, even when you have well-informed concerns, do not lean into that part of your brain. You hear me? With all your heart, as in I worry a lot, I'm, I'm trusting God with those worries, I'm trusting God with those uncertainties, and when my brain says, hey, this isn't, this isn't smart, right? I'm not leaning into that part of, I'm leaning into God in all of my ways. That means even the ways that are difficult and foggy and concerning. In all of your ways, acknowledge or praise him. God, I didn't ask to be a slave. I didn't ask to be in prison. I don't want to be here. I don't want your favor here. But God, I'm acknowledging you. And we wouldn't last a week like in Joseph's shoes, but come on. In all of my ways, I'm acknowledging that he is still in control. It's really hard in the middle of it, isn't it? But the promise is, he will then make our path straight. Not easy, but navigable. Seeing what his plans are. He will, now, he will never fail us. He will not. He never has. God is with us no matter what. So what next? So now, what should I do? He is with us so we can trust him. It's that simple. He is with us so we can trust him. If, he, if there was a 1% chance he would bail out on you, I would say, I don't know about it, but there's a zero fail chance. There's a 0% chance he is gonna forsake you. What if you live with that kind of confidence that God is with me no matter what? We are in his hands so we can trust in his plans. You hear me? We are in his hands so you can trust his plans. He's taking you somewhere that he has well prepared and thought through. So what are we left to do? 
If you want to stay fully engaged with your heavenly father and know him and walk with him, you have got to start and stay at a place of trust. Shift your weight on him. Put all of your weight. You're sitting on a, you're sitting on a pew right now. It's holding you up. But the second you step up on your own feet, you're holding yourself up. Don't stand up. Stay seated in the hand of God. You follow me? Stay before him, surrendered. Trust in him. I think he's proven he's trustworthy, hasn't he? The, the question is, will we trust in him no matter what. Even when you think you've got the strength to walk on your own, when you worry about having the strength to take another step because of all the things that are going wrong, good or bad, will you stay before him and trust? Why would we go anywhere else? Listen, our brains are crazy. There's a lot of reasons why we would. But the Holy Spirit's saying, just trust me. You're in my hands. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you, and we're thankful that no matter what, you will never leave your own. Now, most importantly, if there's anybody here that has never put their faith in Jesus, they've never understood this promise. They've never embraced the promise that the Spirit of God lives in them and is with them and never leaves them. So, God, if there's somebody here today that they don't know about you being with them, and they don't know what it means to have God with them, they can know that right now by simply saying, Jesus, I want you as my Savior. I trust in you because you bring all these promises to me personally. He died for us to forgive us and to give us this relationship with God. We can all have that free of charge, as easy as saying, Lord Jesus, save me. For everybody else here, Lord, we still forget this, even though it's been so clearly told to us and promised to us. Lord, help us to know you are always with us, so we are always going to trust in you no matter what. Easier said than done, but God, would you lead us to a place of total commitment, total surrender, total trust. You have proven yourself trustworthy. Would we take advantage of that foundation, that solid rock, that certain and confidence that Jesus gives us? God is with us no matter what. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.